Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and welcome to uh, Incidentalomas. So let's pick off where we left off. And I mentioned that one of the most common incidentaloma relates to looking at the pancreas, right? And that is really one of the biggest challenges. It's part because so many patients have pancreatic cysts. We know that up to 5% of patients have small incidental pancreatic cystic lesions. They're small, most are incidental, many are IPMNs. And the question then is how do you manage these patients? Do you need to follow them? Do you need to resect them? What do you need to do? Now, it's also true, we should at least mention, that incidental pancreatic masses are not only cysts. These days, with arterial phase imaging, we are picking up a number of small neuroendocrine tumors. Typically, under 1CM, the thought is to follow them, but that's not always the case. And we occasionally will pick up an incidental pancreatic cancer, but that is significantly less common. And when it's a pancreatic cancer, it looks like something worrisome, not a small, simple lesion. We published a paper a number of years ago on 16-slice CT, which found that pancreatic cysts were detected in just under 3% of patients with cyst presence correlated with increasing age and the Asian race. What's important about this article is that as scanners went from 16 to 64 to 128 to 256 and dual source, the better the scanner, the higher the resolution, the more likely you are to pick up a cyst. So this 2.6% is probably closer now to 4 or 5%. People have written articles on MR talking up to 20%. Just simple examples, incidental cystic lesion, one centimeter, body of the pancreas, when you look carefully, it communicates with the pancreatic duct, classic IPMN. Here it is again in the coronal view, very nicely seen. Or another example here, this is about 2.4 centimeters mid-body. You could have a differential diagnosis depending on the age, an MCN, a mucinocystic neoplasm. The question is, when do you need to biopsy these? When do you need EUS? When do you follow these patients? Is this important at all, or do you need to follow them? These lesions can also be multiple. Here's a larger one in the patient's uncine process and another one in the body of the pancreas. And here it is very nicely shown, those multiple lesions on the 3D reconstructions. Again, you look at the lesion carefully, well-defined, water density, no septations or nodularity. When you see thickened septations, surely enhancing septations. When you see nodules, surely enhancing nodules, then the lesion is going to be removed because you're worried about a um, neoplastic process. People argue over the management. Often, three centimeters tends to be the critical number. This Tanaka criteria, over three cm, recommend resection. Now people are rethinking that process. And thin septations, like in this case, are not going to be uncommon. Now with IPMNs, the challenge is they're often seen in older patients. The key is pancreatic duct involvement, and they're classified as main duct, side branch, or mixed type. If you have a main pancreatic duct over a centimeter in size, we consider that a main duct IPMN, and those patients will always get surgery because there's a much higher rate of malignancy if the duct is small, under 5 millimeters, it's likely going to be a benign process. Now, when you're trying to predict malignancy or what could become malignant in an IPMN, remember we're worrying about dysplasia, over 3 centimeters, growth of over 2 millimeters per year, 
the presence of mural nodules, thickened septations, particularly enhancing septations or enhancing nodules, although any nodule is problematic, and then, of course, clinical symptoms. If the patient has abdominal pain, then you need to worry. That alone may make you operate on the patient. And if they have unexplained episodes of pancreatitis, that will also be worrisome. Now, the ACR came up with some rules. Now, they're going to revise these rules because they were somewhat controversial and somewhat incorrect. But some of the comments, surgery should be considered for cysts over 3CM. If a lesion is serous cyst adenoma, think multiple Swiss cheese cysts, maybe central calcification. Typically, surgery is done after 4 or 5 centimeters. Patients with simple cysts under 3M, 3CM can be followed. Now, the question, of course, is how often do you follow them? No one has really come to a conclusion. Some people will say two years. Other people will say there's no way you could determine how long to follow because you're worrying about a field defect. You're worrying about dysplasia. You would literally need to follow patients essentially for the rest of their lives, and that's with CT or MR. The ACR also said that cysts under a centimeter cannot be further characterized and can be followed up less frequently than larger cysts. And they also mentioned that common sense perhaps should be used that if a patient's really old or has lots of comorbidities, perhaps it's not really worth following these patients since you're worrying about risk. And in many of those patients, surgery, which might be a treatment, uh, may be more detrimental to the patient than doing nothing. In this article, they also commented that aspiration is strongly advised to exclude a pseudocyst before surgery is performed, and patients must remain asymptomatic during the follow-up period. So again, those are some guidelines, but this is being revised. And it's interesting, every institution seems to have its own guideline. Here is Mass General. Annual imaging surveillance is sufficient for benign serous adenomas under 4CM and for asymptomatic lesions. Thin-walled unilocular cysts under 3CM or side branch IPMNs should be followed at 6 months and 12 months intervals after detection. Again, cystic lesions with more complex features or faster growth rates should be followed more closely or recommended for resection if the patient's condition allows surgery. Symptomatic cystic lesions, neoplasms with high malignant potential, and lesions over 3CM should be referred for surgical evaluation. EUS with aspiration can be used preoperatively to assess the risk of malignancy. We are getting better with these uh, EUS guided biopsies, but it's still often a challenge because often the pathology is indeterminate. There's been several articles, and this article is in press in radiology. And this made the point about follow-up. Some people felt that if lesions did not grow in a short period of time, one or two years, then you really did not need to worry about them. Well, that, this article makes the point that it's not the case. The, the stopping of follow-up studies after one year of stability could have undesirable consequences, particularly in younger patients who have a longer lifespan. And this article did make the point, and it's one of the reasons, I mean, we knew this as well, and many of you knew this as well, that you need to really revise the criteria. At this point, there is no good conclusion as to when you can stop following patients. We hope to find an answer. We hate to follow patients forever, but at this point, we don't have a really good scientific basis 
for stopping at any one point. What do we do at Hopkins? Newly diagnosed lesion, follow-up study of three to six months, depending on its appearance, EUS. If it's a main duct, IPMN, they will get surgery. If it's an MCN or looks like an MCN, they'll get surgery. And if it's growing over three to five millimeters per year, that will also guarantee you surgery. Now we've published on this. Here's an article we published. Multidisciplinary clinic we have on pancreatic cysts. And this article has some very nice charts which basically show how we deal with these patients. We try to do a very logical approach to these patients, so that becomes indeed very, very important to us. Now, you can see that when you look at the chart that what happens for a lot of these patients is that the management that we recommend is different than the management that was recommended on the outside. That always is going to be a challenge in looking at patients. Now again, I think part of that is because people have different rules. If you look at some of our results, you can see the referring institution and what we did in terms of low and intermediate and high-risk patients. So again, I think we did a very good job, but it's very important to recognize that you need rules. We altered management in 30% of the cases. Again, partly it's because our rules are a bit different, though we seem to do a good job. The most common diagnosis was a branch duct IPMN. We altered risk category in 11 of the patients. Management category was altered in 68 or 30% of cases. Management was increased in 52 patients. Management was decreased in 16 patients. So you can see the second review does not necessarily mean you're gonna get surgery. It may mean you weren't gonna get surgery. But a third of the cases there was a change in recommendation. So that indeed is very important. None of the patients in whom the recommendation was changed from surgery to surveillance developed evidence of malignancy during follow-up. So it looks like we're doing the right thing. Now I mentioned before, and everything we've discussed till now, has been the fact that when you're looking at pancreatic lesions, you're talking about cystic incidental findings. I mentioned at the start of this session that we also can see neuroendocrine tumors. And here's a nice example of a five millimeter neuroendocrine tumor. We've been able to pick these up more commonly these days, and that's very important. The question is, how do you manage these patients? It was felt initially that under one or two CM, just leave alone. But now people are recognizing that if you look at this chance for malignancy, any lesion could have a chance, and it's really based on the pathology of the lesion itself. There's a lot of effort trying to figure out how to manage these patients, and it is tricky. Now, if you ask me the question, why are we picking up incidental uh, neuroendocrine tumors? Well, it's important to recognize we do lots of vascular imaging these days. We do a lot of arterial phase mapping. And so here's an obvious three centimeter vascular tumor which was a neuroendocrine tumor incidentally detected in the head of the pancreas. Very, very obvious to you, of course. But if I showed you these images on the patient's venous phase, look how the lesion is not seen. There's no dilated common duct, there's no dilated pancreatic duct, there's no true textural change. It's only the increased vascularity that became indeed very critical. And you can see that if you only had the venous phase images on your right, you never would have diagnosed the lesion. So as we do more arterial phase imaging, it's not a surprise that we're gonna pick up more neuroendocrine tumors. 
Um, this article by Harara, incidental detection of pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors has increased over the last decade due to the use of advanced imaging techniques. Uh, again, the thought about how we manage this patients. This article by Farrell, natural history of pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors is variable. One of the most controversial problems in diagnosis is the accurate prediction of the clinical behavior of these tumors. So again, it's something pathologists are looking at very carefully. It indeed is a challenge. This article by Herrera, again, non-MEN-related, non-functioning asymptomatic neuroendocrine tumors under 2CM with a KI67 index of under 2% have a low risk of metastasis. And it goes on, because metastasis may occur with a long delay with smaller neuroendocrine tumors, patients should consider age, location, and risk before deciding on operating, which basically means if the patient is younger and has a long lifespan ahead of them, perhaps they should be operated on. So again, it's a very interesting problem and something I think that we're going to learn a lot more about as we go forward. Now let me also cover another topic at this time in terms of incidental findings, and that's going to be the spleen. And I give lectures on CTSS about the spleen, and we talk about the spleen a lot. We talk about the range of lesions with the findings that most splenic lesions are benign, and many are incidental findings. We talk about the different lesions. Most of them are cysts or hamartomas, but we could see everything from lymphangiomas to extramedular hematopoiesis to sand tumors, and the list goes on and on. The spleen is also involved in many processes as a secondary organ. Think about lymphoma, think about sarcoidosis, or it can be a primary organ. Think about an abscess or even primary Hodgkin's disease. Most lesions in the spleen are going to be benign. We talk about cystic lesions. Uh, incidental findings can range from a few centimeters to 10 centimeters. Sometimes the lesions are so large they will need to be resected. Hemangiomas are the most common benign tumor of the spleen. Hemangiomas of the spleen do not necessarily behave like liver hemangiomas. They don't have that peripheral pattern of enhancement and central filling in. So it is a bit more of a challenge with these patients. Uh, most of them are small and incidental findings. We talk about hamartomas, which are rare tumors, but hamartomas tend to have a specific pattern. They tend to be in great part exophytic. Now, when I speak about the spleen, I talk about reality. Most lesions are benign. It's like the adrenal. Without even looking, it's probably benign, unless you have a known malignancy or the patient's fever, has fever. Then you might think about an abscess. We rarely perform biopsies, though you can do them. Most lesions are simply followed. There's no great technique for the spleen. We do dual phase imaging or single phase imaging, but there's no real tricks of the trade in that regard. I think in doing the spleen, it's important to think about other things, clinical history, patient's febrile, patient had a uh, aortic valve replaced, think about uh, an infarct, patient has lymphoma, sarcoidosis. You want to think about the extra splenic findings. Is the liver involved? What are the size of the lesions? Are there adenopathy present? What about the clinical history? What else is going on? We also talk about simple things. The spleen can confuse you. It's very common to get accessory spleens in about 16% of cases. 
usually under two centimeters, usually near the hilum of the spleen. And they typically enhance identical to the splenic tissue, but sometimes they're far away. Sometimes they're embedded in the tail of the pancreas and look like a neuroendocrine tumor. So it can indeed be challenging. Um, we also talk about the spleen rotating, particularly if the patient has had a right, rather a left nephrectomy. Now, important things we know, accessory spleens enhance like normal spleens, both on arterial and venous phase imaging. So it's easy to look at a case like this, and you see the spleen, and you see it's the same density, same appearance as the accessory spleen. We talk about this case, again, tail of pancreas. What's going on here? Is this a tumor of the pancreas, like a neuroendocrine tumor? Or is this simply just going to be a uh, incidental finding? Here it is again, and you could see that when you look at it, it's really separate. It's simply an accessory spleen near the tail of the pancreas, which you can see in some of the reconstructions in this example. And again, it can be a challenge. On the right phase, which is the early phase, you can see the similarity and then look at it carefully across phases as the lesion changes its appearance. So that becomes very, very important. Just to mention a couple benign splenic lesions, cysts, hemangiomas, hematomas. Cysts are common, I mentioned that before. Well-defined water density. They can calcify, but when I see a calcified splenic lesion, I'm always thinking about an old hematoma which in this case it was. And cysts can be solitary or multiple. They can range in size for a few millimeters to 10 or more centimeters. I mentioned before about hemangiomas. Occasionally you'll see them with Clipeltronani Weber. Most of the time they're incidental findings. They're small, maybe 10% behave just like classic hemangiomas of the liver with peripheral enhancement and then puddling and central filling in. Most simply remain hypo or hyperdense. Occasionally they will calcify and here's just one lesion with sort of a donut shaped appearance in the spleen. We talk about looking at the spleen then looking at other organs. Here's a nice example of a patient um, you'll see in a moment who has sarcoid but again when you think about liver and spleen we think about lymphoma, we think about metastasis, we think about infection, we think about sarcoidosis, and sarcoid, particularly in the patient with no known malignancy with very minor symptoms, is ideal. Here's a great example of such a case. This looks like a lymphoma or metastasis or something. This was sarcoidosis, and here's another example of the spleen with sarcoidosis. Now you say, well, gee, that's very unusual. Well, the fact is up to 59% of patients with sarcoid have splenic involvement and up to 70% of liver involvement. So again, it's indeed very, very common. Now, when I speak about other things, splenic infarcts, wedge-shaped defects, we're typically thinking endocarditis, but it can be due to atrial fib, sickle cell disease, lymphoma, splenomegaly, almost anything. And like any infarct, wedge-shaped, water density, variable enhancement, often sharper with time. Uh, and here's just a nice example showing you that infarct. We talk about certain diseases that have infarcts. And the first one and the main one that comes to mind will be um, sickle cell disease. In patients with sickle cell disease, it's very common to see splenic abnormalities. Uh, in patients with SS disease, 
the uh, spleens are very small and they typically do calcify and here's just a nice example of an auto-infarcted spleen. We mentioned splenic abscesses. Splenic abscesses are very rare, fortunately. Uh, when patients do have them, they usually have a history. Patients had surgery, patients had endocarditis, patient has diabetes, patient has IV drug abuse. But at the end of the day, they're very uncommon. But when you see them, you kind of recognize them. This is not a cyst, this is not hematoma, this is not hemangioma. This could be primary lymphoma, I guess. They can look very similar, but you can see low density can be solid, uh, cystic, solitary, or multiple. Uh, in patients who are immunosuppressed, we see multiple tiny lesions, as with candidiasis, or in this case, aspergillosis. Uh, you can see in this case of aspergillosis, now again, uh, this is an abscess within the spleen. There are multiple tiny lesions, but this patient had, was immunocompromised, so it was very easy. So you can see, again, the spleen history is so critical, will help you out. If not, most lesions are going to be incidental. So with that, why don't we just take a break there for a few minutes, and then we'll come back, finish part three, and uh, call it a day. We'll be right back.